Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, free trade and buying American. And the reason that that phrase is in there, Richard, is that as we are recording this, it is Buy American Week as announced by the Trump administration. There's been a number of events corresponding with that. Today, for instance, the president was showcasing items from all 50 states at the White House. Nothing wrong with that, of course, but I want to ask you about the underlying impulse here. Buy American. You can understand it as a consumer sentiment. Does it make sense as something for the president to be promoting as a matter of public policy? No, I think uh, Trump is so desperately wrong on the entire trade issues that it's hard to know where to begin to correct him. I have an expression that I've used with you or try many times that when it comes to, to Trump, you always consume on an a la carte basis. So you may support him strongly on some issues, as I did with respect to his withdrawal from the Paris Accords, and oppose him ferociously on other issues like this one. The problem about buying American is it doesn't generalize into a normative position for three trade wars. Do we want the French to be buying French? Do we want the British to be buying British? Um, do we say that this is true only for us but not for anybody else? He's not the first person to have made this mistake. Uh, the President Obama was also equally terrible on this issue in many ways because they kept on thinking that the entire world had to make sure that the United States enjoyed a trade export advantage with other nations. So he wanted to sell American stuff overseas and didn't want to buy stuff from there. But trade doesn't work that way. And the moment you start doing this, you encourage other people people to imitate you. The moment you start doing that, uh, protective tariffs and other kinds of inconveniences with international trade will start to take place and everyone will be the hurt. Now, I don't think that the uh, Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership was an ideal kind of arrangement, but when we started to pull out from that instead of trying to figure out how you reform it from within, it was a real blow, I think, to American leadership on an issue where we really should have taken advantage. And what Trump should have said, I think that this is generally a pretty good thing, but there are certain protectionist features of this particular bill, certain restrictions on freedom of trade that I would like to see removed. And so you could have critiqued this particular legislation from an open market um, free international trade perspective instead of trying to draw things tighter. What happens, of course, is if you buy American only in the United States, it makes it e more difficult to sell overseas. So uh, one of the things that we know from, of all people, Paul Krugman, his Nobel Prize work, which was really quite good, said what you do is you see a lot of trade taking place amongst advanced American companies advanced technological countries, the United States and everybody else. We buy their components, we sell them our completed project, they do the same thing. And what happens is if you can't buy foreign stuff, uh, then you have to substitute inferior American goods and materials. When you try to sell on the export market, you're going to either have an inferior product, a higher price, or some combination, it's going to frustrate it. Uh, so the point to remember quite simply is unless you import, you will not be able to export, at which point you want to be able to buy anywhere where you get the best price and sell anywhere where you're going to get the best price on the other side of the market. So this is really very lamentable. Of course, it's nice for anybody to promote the attractive American goods, uh, but the argument should be, we think these are the best goods in the world. We think everybody should buy them for that reason. Somebody else has a different idea that we could compete in the marketplace. We don't have to have tariffs or other kinds of barriers against international exchange. Richard, thus far, President Trump's rhetoric on trade has 
has been more aggressive than any of the action that he's actually taken. You can look, for example, at NAFTA where the president during the campaign talked about scrapping it. Now that seems to have been pulled back to just sort of renegotiating it. You mentioned earlier that, for instance, with the TPP, there were a lot of features that needed to be fixed. With these trade agreements that we have on the books, is it worthwhile to open them back up and look at some of the provisions and what makes a good or a bad trade deal? Well, it depends on the attitude that you're coming with. If what you're going to do is to look at the residual restraints that are imposed under one form or another and do it with respect to every participant and you end up with a more free trade agreement than you started with, I think that would in general be a welcome phenomenon. If you're going to start to sort of carve out and say, well, our beer has to be protected and your tacos have to be protected, then in effect it's a product-by-product disaster from which you will never be able to recover. But it's important to understand what the president did not not understand as to why it was that the NAFTA deal still survived. We have basically a huge trade with Mexico. I think the exports to Mexico are in the order of $800 billion and the imports are in the order of a trillion dollars. And the president, not understanding the economics of this, says, hey, uh, we're coming out $200 billion short. But there are two points that he overlooked. One is you knock out the NAFTA agreement, all of a sudden you've got sellers of $800 billion worth of goods who are not going to have a market there. And they sell them agricultural stuff and produce or whatever it is, automobile parts, who knows? They're going to get them from somewhere else. These guys are going to scream. Because what they worried about is not the balance of trade or the deficits. They're worried about the fact that they're going to lose a market. And these are people in Republican states like Texas. And in fact, if you look at the Texas situation, they're doing swimmingly well, even though they're closest to Mexico. It's not that they've been hurt the most. If anything, they've been helped the most by this thing. Then they're the other side. They're the guys who are doing the importing. They're going to start screaming too. I can't get my beer. I can't get my components. I now have to pay more money somewhere else. So instead of having everybody being appalled at this arrangement, you got $1.8 trillion of stuff being angry about the fact that markets are going to be lost on both sides. Even he cannot ignore that. So what about that $200 billion difference? Well, if in fact that money is in the United States, it's going to be invested here in firms and businesses. One of the things that we know all too well is that if you want to create jobs in the United States, you have to have capital improvements in order to support the labor uh, that can service them. And these um, investments from the imports are going to be perfectly good. And so what you do is you have huge trade in one direction, huge trade in another direction, and then you get some investment in capital in the United States. Each of the three components is a plus. Why do you want to treat it as a negative? Now, one other thing to mention is that the president's always going to say, but you know, if you go to Fort Wayne, Indiana, you're going to see people wiped out by a firm that went to Mexico. But you have to ask what the alternative is. That firm might have just simply dissolved. And so you're going to lose all the jobs, and Mexico's not going to gain anything. Or that firm might leave Fort Wayne, Indiana, in order to go to Boise, Idaho. You have no idea where it is. If you start looking at these individual cases, what happens is you assume that all of them are attributable to the trade overseas, as opposed to domestic competition, and that may be false. And you assume that they're all going to survive if it isn't the fact that there's an export market, and that's going to be false. And you're going to ignore all the benefits that other American institutions get uh, from having borders open up, which will take some of the jobs that might be lost in this particular case. Uh, so what you have to do is to do it as a general equilibrium, taking all the pluses and all the minuses. And if you're going to start looking at individual workers who are hurt, you have to look at individual workers who are benefited as well. And since free trade is a positive sum game, they're going to be more of the latter than there are of the former. And that, I think, cannot be ignored in these kinds of accounts. 
Richard, there are certain sectors of the economy, just to name two off the top of my head, agriculture and products like steel, where you will hear arguments sometimes that they should be exempted from general principles of free trade because they are too essential to national security, the idea that you'd be reliant on another country for your food source or for basic sort of industrial components. Does that argument hold any water with you? Well, in narrow cases, there are certainly national security interests that will trump free trade, but these aren't them. Um, What happens is uh, if you're going to do this, you're going to import not only from red China and from Russia, you're going to import steel from your allies. And so if you now say it's really important for national security that we do this all ourselves, what you're going to do is create strains and alliances that you have with other nations with whom you have a lot of common interests. And so it can't be that you want to be completely self-sufficient. You certainly want even in wartime to have these kinds of shared type situations. So the argument at the very least is overgeneral. On the other hand, if it turns out that there is a war and you're blockaded, and at this point there are only domestic alternatives, you can't assume that the American industry starts goes down to zero and can't be built up at all. What will happen is you will get a crash component and a program going into place which will try to pick up these gaps. On agriculture, I can't even understand where the argument actually begins. Um, we certainly can export. If they're going to be barriers to export, then there'll be an abundance of food in the United States. Um, what happens is if you start looking at all of these things, this is what typically takes place. Every industry claims that it's special, and they're all true. Housing is special, so you need rent control. Agriculture is special, so you need price support. Steel is, pre- is special, so you need protective tariffs. Every industry turns out to be special. And what happens about them is since they're all special, a free trade regime works equally well for all of them. And so these kind of selective arguments almost always invite a form of regulation. This is what the New Deal did. This is what happened when we got Obamacare. Why is that? Because everybody knows that health care turns out to be special. Every industry has its unique features. Every industry could benefit from free exchange precisely because if there's a uniqueness here, you could take advantage of what I can do better than you and what you can do, relatively speaking, better than me. And through the principle of comparative advantage, no matter how distinct, no matter how complicated, no matter how treacherous any particular market is, free trade on a global scale will ordinarily far outperform the protectionists that the American first is like the president put forward. I mean, it's just so sad to listen to a Republican president say this, I want to pull his hair out of mine, preferably his. <laughs> the anxiety around trade seems to be at highest dudgeon rhetorically, especially on the president's behalf, around the, the field of manufacturing. I, I wonder, Richard, how do you think about that? Are, are we too – do we have too romantic a conception of manufacturing relative to the economic realities? No, manufacturing is a funny good. First of all, services in some cases can be sent overseas. You could have um, x-rays taken in the United States and they could be read in India and got back to you in the morning. On the other hand, it's kind of difficult to have your personal trainer live in India or the restaurant or your hotel there. So what's going to happen is you're going to see more jobs in the United States on the service side of the economy. And so the number of trainers, the number of physical therapists, all this stuff is going to continue to grow because you can't export them. As to manufacture, uh, they're two different measures and they yield very different results. If you 
look at the number of jobs involved, that's down. If you look at the total gross product in American manufacturing, that's up. And ironically, uh, the only way it's going to work is you have to cut out jobs in order to keep the production efficient. And so what you expect to do is to see more and more coming out of less and less. That's good. The president is a closet Keynesian. Keynes seemed to think that it was better if you made a million dollars worth of goods, you had 100,000 workers making them instead of 1,000 workers. It's exactly the opposite. There's just redundancy and waste. And the whole point of a system of trade is that what you do is you make every industry as efficient as you can. The released labor and the released capital go somewhere else. Now, there is a huge battle as to what kind of assistance you give to people who are displaced when they lose their jobs. And my attitude towards that is there are two ways you can do it. One is you could try and give direct grants from the government to ease them over, and maybe some tie payments would be okay. But generally speaking, the only way that this is going to work is to have the rest of the economy free enough so they could absorb the workers who have been laid off. There's a nice way, I think, to make this point. You look at the job figures and they say, America gained $280,000 last month, 1,000 jobs last month. That's not what they gained. We probably lost 1,500,000 and we gained 1,880,000 jobs. That is, jobs get destroyed at an incredibly rapid rate. And so what you're doing is you're looking at the next figure to assume that that's a measure of volatility. That's incorrect. The volatility is the total jobs lost plus the total jobs gained. And most of them are done domestically. Well, do we give aid only to people who lose foreign jobs, not the domestic jobs? It becomes something of a nightmare. And so we do have a general system of unemployment insurance, which I'm not trying to remove at this point. And I think whatever we do on the general case for lost employment should apply to the international case. We can't possibly imagine two set of rules and then try to figure out whether or not this job loss was because the factory went in part to Mexico and in part to Colorado. And so therefore, we don't know which it is. Um, We don't want to get into that kind of ad hocery. Some protection may be fine, but if it is, it's going to be for all job losses. And you don't want it to be too good because then people won't go back to work. It's a serious moral hazard problem. And you don't want it to be so skimpy that they really fall on skids. But the best way to keep people employed is to have new firms starting up in new specialties. And then if people want education, God forbid that the government should do it, give people a stipend and let them go find some private business that can instruct them. Most really good education in the United States today is taking place in the private sector, and much of it has nothing to do with degrees. We will teach you a course on how to code computers. You will stay with us. You pay us $10,000, and your salary next year will be $45,000 instead of $25,000, or whatever the numbers are. That's where you want to create the jobs. You don't want to create it out of government mandates, which will kill other segments of the economy. So the last thing I'll ask you, if we're forswearing protectionism as a policy tool, what are the non-trade policy levers that we should be leaning on to try and make American firms and American workers more competitive and better able to deal with a global economy? Well, the first thing you want to do is to clean up the domestic situation. One thing that's very nice about an open economy is if you've got pockets of monopoly inefficiency, they won't – they won't survive when you get foreign intervention. And so therefore, what free trade does, it makes it difficult for unions, which makes it better for the overall productivity of the United States. So that's your first objection. And secondly, anytime you see a barrier against the 
efficient deployment of resources, you try to figure out how to remove it. Um, I recall a speech that Nikki Haley gave at the Federal Society about a year ago. It was really a terrific speech. And she says, we wanted to get people to come into South Carolina to make tires here. And she said, what did we do? Well, we made the place more hospitable. We lowered real estate taxes. We simplified the doing business forms. We got rid of the corporate tax. We did a whole bunch of things. And sure enough, people came to our shores to invest. And remember the irony, the only way they can invest in the United States is that they are willing to put money in here and that's what the trade deficits give you, the investment. So you can do it that way. But the basic theory of international exchange in a sentence has to be as follows. You have multiple tracks run by different governments and you want them to operate as a unified grid so that any good which is made on any part of any track could be sold or bought in any other track anywhere else. That's what you would ideally like to have. And the only way you can do that is through a relentless free trade policy. Are there exceptions? Yes, I'll make this. There are certain things like military secrets and trade secrets, patent protection and so forth, um, which you really have to guard. But the basic principle is in the United States, if you're a government military contractor and you get a trade secret on how to put together a fancy new weapon, you can't use that in your ordinary business. You're bound to secrecy. And the same thing should be true when we make these kinds of exchanges with foreign nations. And in the domestic setting, if you have a secret and you want to hire X, Y, and Z as a contractor, the FBI is going to look into them to see whether it works. Same thing with respect to the foreign guy. And so if there are justifications for limitations on free trade because of natural, national security, the protection of intellectual property, or the protection of trade secrets, they should be consistently enforced in the domestic and foreign market. Uh, so there are limitations on free trade, but there are none that I can be aware of which would systematically favor domestic producers as the president would want over foreign producers. I want you to buy the best goods possible and to sell in the best places, and the rest of this stuff will sort itself out without the benevolent intervention of the White House on the free trade issues. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.